The scripture reading this morning is Joshua 4, 19 through 24. The people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Just want to take a couple minutes and just be silent in the presence of God. Just allow Him to speak to you. Allow Him to exalt Himself in your eyes. Allow Him to put His hand upon your head and, and bless you now. Our Lord and God, you are great and mighty. You are high and lifted up. And you alone sit on the seat of the throne of heaven, ruling all of the nations, ruling the earth, ruling our solar system, ruling our galaxy, ruling the hundred billion galaxies in this universe, ruling everything with which they teem. Lord God, you are the eternal God and you are exalted And so we exalt you simply because we're acknowledging who you are. And I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that you would manifest yourself among us this morning. Well, Lord, we're going to meditate on a story where you did mighty things. And I pray that you would show us today that you are the living God. And that we're not reading stories about a God who did a lot of things a long time ago, but no longer does them. But we're reading the story of a living God who is with us today in Jesus Christ and ready to work his wonders in his time for the glory of his name. Oh God, exalt yourself among us now, I pray. Make the word of God live for us, I pray. Use the word of God to sting and use the word of God to make us sing before you today. Oh Father, come and do your work and I praise you. I give you all my thanks and praise because I know that you will honor your word this day. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Seasons like this uh, in life do come, but they are rare seasons. For a person, for a family, for a church, for a nation, a season like this may come once or twice or three times in an entire lifetime. So they do come, but they're rare. The season I have in mind is what I might call the season of suddenly, and it's a very important part of our walk with God. It's a a very important part of the journey that God has always called his people to take with him. So let me just take a few minutes and explain to you what I mean by this, the, the season of suddenly. Imagine, if you will, that God has made a number of promises to his people, and he's confirmed those promises to his people over a period of time, time and again. 
But as we've waited on the Lord, it's turned out that it's taken a, a lot, lot longer than we expected for God to fulfill His promises. In fact, it's taken so long that we begin to doubt, Lord, did you even make your promises at all? Did, did I perceive you right? It's taken so long that we've entered deep into the pain of waiting and waiting and waiting upon the Lord with which many of you are familiar. It's taken so long that God has used the intense heat of waiting on Him to surface things in our lives that need to be taken away so that we would be more like God and less like us and more ready to enter into the promises of God. This long passage of time which every true follower of God knows about eventually. That's what we might call the season of waiting. But when the time is full and the rivers of promise are ready to spill into the ocean of fulfillment, God begins to act suddenly. God begins to do wonders. God begins to honor His promises for the glory of His name. And things go very quickly. God manifests Himself in undeniable ways and in powerful ways that take our breath away. We begin to see with our eyes the things that we've always believed in our hearts and we come to know that God is the living God manifest among us. We know at this moment and we believe that God is the living God but in seasons of suddenly, God makes Himself so plain that nobody can deny God is alive and well and acting for the glory of His name on planet earth. That is the essence of the season of suddenly. It is the, the manifestation of the presence of God. The season of waiting gives way to that rare season of suddenly. And as we look back and reflect on what God has done, one thing that we know for sure and we know deep in our hearts is that the suddenly didn't actually happen so suddenly, right? It's taken time. We look back and we reflect on what God has done and we know, we know that we know that all that time of waiting, God was working. God was preparing things. God was tilling the ground. God was getting everything ready. He was gathering people, gathering resources, doing everything He had to do. And God knew the exact moment when His glory would be most magnified and our joy would be most amplified. And at that moment, God chose to act. So when we look back, we know that suddenly actually didn't happen so suddenly. And we praise God for the waiting and for the wonders, both things. That's what today's message is about, beloved. When the time is right, God works wonders on the basis of His promises for the glory of His name. We're going to look at that today in Joshua 3 through 5. And if we'll fix our eyes on Jesus and walk with Him through this life, we will see this kind of thing in our own lives as well. We won't see it very often because, as I said, the season of suddenly is a rare season. I can probably point to one or two times at the most in my life where I feel like I've experienced something like this, but one, two, three times in a lifetime. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And I am certain that for all of us, eventually, we will experience a season like this. We will see God work His wonders on the basis of His promises for the glory of His name. So let's turn our attention to the book of Joshua now. And let me just remind you that God had made a promise to Abraham and then he confirmed that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and to Moses and to Joshua and to all the leaders of Israel over a period of about 700 years. 
Now one thing that the people of God got to wake up with and just deal with is that God does not work on our timetable. Amen? He's just not on our time. He's not. He's an eternal God. He's ever-existing. He has no beginning of days and no end of days, so He has time. He has flexibility that we don't relate to and that we don't have. And so He will inform us about the heart of the things that He plans to do, but He almost never tells us anything about the timing in which He plans to do it. Is that right? So many times God has, has, has revealed things to me and I'm just certain God's going to do that thing tomorrow. And then one year passes and five year passes and ten years pass and I start wondering, God, did I hear you at all? Well, God is just not on our timetable. And in the case of Israel, beloved, 700 years have passed now between the time that God made His promises to Abraham and the time we're about to look at today. After so many centuries of waiting, the faithful God was about to rise up and bring His people into His promises. He was about to lead them into the promised land for the glory of His name and eventually the blessing of all the nations of the earth. Just days before this, Moses, that great man of God, had died and God drew near to Joshua to tell him and confirm to him that he indeed was the man that God had chosen to take Moses' place. And you'll remember from last week that in order to fulfill that calling, God told Joshua to do three things, basically. To, to make a life of, of, of these three things, not just to do them at a moment in time. Number one, he said, Joshua, I want you to fix your eyes on me by saturating your mind with my word and thinking about it day and night. So God's vision was that Joshua would make the word of God his food and his drink and his ultimate delight. That he'd just saturate his mind, saturate his heart, saturate his life with the things of God. And then second thing, as Joshua gained understanding about what God would have him do, the Lord said, Joshua, submit yourself to my commands and do what I say by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then number three, as you do that, enter into the promises that I have already prepared for you. So three things. Fix your eyes on me, submit your life to me, and enter into my promises. This was the word of God to Joshua in the moments before the season of suddenly was about to begin. And it was just exactly the right word for the right time. And so, in obedience to the Lord, Joshua commanded two of his people to enter into the promised land and spy it out. And you'll remember that when they came to the city of Jericho, God provided for them a person who made them know in no uncertain terms that God had already gone before them to prepare the way. God had already placed the fear of him inside the hearts of the people, and God was going to win the victory for them. The peoples of that land were very numerous and they were mightier than Israel, but God made clear to Israel that because he was with them, those people would not be able to stand before them at all. God was their victory and God was with them. And praise be to God, the Lord revealed these things to the spies of Israel through the mouth of a woman who was a Gentile and a prostitute. Oh, how God loves to choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Oh, how God loves to dispense and display His grace even as He brings His people into His promises. The people of Israel had no idea who Rahab was. They had no idea as they looked her in the eyes that God planned to make her the mother-in-law of Ruth after whom the book of Ruth is named. 
And she would become the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest king in the history of Israel except Jesus Christ. And she would be in the long lineage that led to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, praise be to God, beloved, who dispenses his grace and turns a person like Rahab from a Gentile prostitute into royalty in the kingdom of God. She is royalty. She was forced to do things that we don't even want to talk about. But in the presence of God, she is decked out like a queen. This is the grace of God manifested among the people of Israel. The next day, we see in chapter 3 of Joshua, Joshua rose early in the morning, and he commanded the people to pack up camp and to take a 10-mile journey from where they were right to the banks of the river Jordan. They camped right on the banks of the Jordan for three days, And at the end of three days, the officers went throughout the camp and they told the people to get ready to set out. But they told them, don't set out until you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord going on before you. And that's a a very, very important point, beloved, because God is trying to tell his people that when he brings them into his promises, he must be in the lead. It is extremely crucial that God take the center place and that the people come in behind him. We get into so much trouble when we get ahead of the Lord and do things in the name of the Lord and then go back and ask the Lord to to bless things that we're doing for Him but that He's never led us to do. It's so important that we let God go first, that we wait on Him in prayer and, and in patience and let Him take the lead. And when He takes the lead, when He sets out with the Ark of the Covenant, we follow in behind Him. And so the commanders told the people to do that, very carefully to do that. And they said, when the Ark sets out, we need you to put about a half a mile's distance between the Ark and yourselves. And I think the reason that they're doing this mainly is to display the, the power of the holiness of God that was demonstrated by that Ark. You remember what the Ark of the Covenant is. The Ark of the Covenant is that place where Almighty God manifested His glory in a way that He did not anywhere else on the face of the earth. God is God and He is everywhere. There's nowhere we can go where God is not. But somehow, some way, God manifested Himself in that Ark in a special way, a, a, a glorious way, a holy way. And He had to be venerated. Beloved, he was near to his people, and God had a real heart for his people. God loved his people. He really wanted to be in relationship with him, but they had to remember that he's holy, very holy. And they had to deal with him with reverence, and so put distance between he and you for the time being. Let him go ahead, follow on behind him, and make sure that you reverence him as holy. This is why Joshua said this, chapter 3, verse 5, if you'll look there. He told Israel, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So he's saying, Israel, cleanse your bodies, probably with all the ritual laws that they had. Remember, Joshua's an obedient guy. He's been reading the law of God, and he remembers all the cleansing laws that God commanded. He's telling them, do what God has commanded you to do. Cleanse yourselves Cleanse your body, cleanse your mind, make your sacrifices, get yourself ready to be in the presence of the Almighty because soon He will manifest His mighty power among us and you must be ready. 
And then after that, the time finally came and Joshua commanded the priest to take up the Ark of the Covenant and set out before the people. The promises of God were firm and the timing of God was perfect and now the time had come for the people to enter in to the fullness of his promises. And so God, through Joshua, issued the command, Israel, set out. And right at that time, at the perfect time, God showed up and visited Joshua again and spoke to him two things. He said, Joshua, I'm going to exalt you in the eyes of the people today. I'm going to show them that I am with you even as I was with Moses and I will establish you as a great man of God and as a leader in Israel. And second thing, Joshua, I want you to tell the priests that when they get to the banks of the river, that I want them to walk right into the middle of the river and stand in the middle of the river and stay there until I tell them to move. That might not seem like an unusual commandment to you, especially if you know the rest of the story. But if, like Joshua, you didn't know the rest of the story, that would be a very unusual thing for God to say. Beloved, it is not normal to walk right into the middle of a raging river unless you're one of these wild rafter kind of guys, right? We don't do that. Especially if you're a group of priests decked out in holy vestments that God has given to you and told you to treat as holy. You don't go swimming in the vestments of God. And especially if you're holding the Ark of the Covenant of God where the presence of God is manifest among His people, you don't play with this thing. You don't take it into the middle of a river. So it must have seemed unusual, but that's what God commanded. And so Joshua, being a humble man of God, asked no questions. He just did what the Lord called him to do. He called the people to them and he said this in verses 9 through 13. Will you look there? Chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe, one man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap." Now, that would have been an amazing promise at any time of year, but we find out in verse 15 that at this particular time of year, the Jordan River was at its flood stage. And so the rivers were, were, were racing downstream and the waters were roaring as they flowed. And they overflowed the banks, sort of baptizing the land, if you will, and preparing the way of the Lord who was about to do mighty things in the midst of His people. And according to the word of the Lord, precisely as he had said, the very moment that the soles of the feet of the priests dipped into the water of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan stood up in a heap and the people looked and could see the dry ground of the riverbed. Now put yourself in their place. Praise God we live near a mighty river. We, we can understand this. 
Imagine if you were standing by the banks of the Mississippi with about a million and a half of your closest friends. And God is with you and God has spoken to a group of pastors and he told the pastors, walk into the river. The moment their foot touched the water, the waters dried up and stood up in a heap about 20 miles upstream. Imagine the awe that you would feel in your soul if you saw the Mississippi River split in two. Imagine the sense of fear of God that you would have and the the sense that the living God is with you and all you would want to do is bow your heart and bow your life before this God and say praises be to your name, the God who works mighty wonders. And I'm sure that this is what Israel felt in their hearts, beloved. They had just seen God demonstrate the fact that He is the living God who does wonders. He stretches out galaxies and He stops up rivers anytime that He wants to do that. Now let me push the pause button on the story right there for a minute and talk with you for just a moment about how this river might have stopped up. In the Jordan River Valley, there are lots of fault lines, just like there are in California where I came from. And so probably, as it is in California, there are probably earthquakes there every day. Most of them are imperceivable, but earthquakes every day, and sometimes they have large earthquakes. In the years 1267 and 1927, and I praise God for the 1927 one, because we actually have pictures of this. There were two major earthquakes in the city called Adam, in the very place where this story says the rivers uh, stopped up. 20 miles upstream from where Israel was is this little city called Adam. The Bible says the river stopped there. In 1267 and 1927, this exact thing happened. An earthquake shook the mountains and rocks fell down and the Jordan River was stopped for about a full day in both instances. Now, in Judges chapter 5 and Psalm 114, I, I put those verses in your notes in case you want to look at them later. The Bible seems to say that when God came near the Jordan, the mountains shook and the earth quaked and the Lord God Almighty had His way. So it's possible that God used a mighty earthquake to stop up the river and let His people go through the riverbed. But even if He used a so-called natural act like that, it was still a supernatural thing because of the timing even if the people of God would be, had been camped there for one month, and sometime in that month of time, they looked at the river and said, hey, that's interesting. Look over there. Did you notice the waters of the Jordan aren't flowing anymore? That would be amazing enough, but think of the timing that the Bible tells us about here. It says that the moment the foot of the priest touched the waters of the Jordan, boom, like that, the waters stopped up. If you doubt that, God could do something like that. I just invite you to go to hubblesite.org or look out at the night sky and realize how big and great and mighty God is. And I'm telling you, stopping up a river is no more complicated for him than turning a faucet off is for us. It's nothing to God. So whether he used an earthquake or not, I don't know. What I do know is that by way of a miracle, he made a way for his people where there was no way. The waters of the Jordan were stopped up in obedience to God, in worship of God. And because they were, the priests of God were able to walk right into the middle of the riverbed and stand their ground. That's the way the Hebrew reads, like they went in there and they stood their ground. They had firmness under them. 
And while they were there, one million and a half to two million people passed by them, one family after another, after another, after another, and none of them got even so much as a drop of water on their clothing. God had made a way where there was no way because, beloved, God is faithful to do everything that he promises to do in his good time and in his good way. He will, and he seems to delight to, put his people in between a rock and a hard place while he's waiting to fulfill his promises. He seems to love to do this. He loves to put his people between an ocean and an army where there's no way out except by him. He loves to put his people between a wilderness and a raging river where there's no way into the promise except by the power of God. But when he's ready, the Lord God Almighty stands up and he causes rivers to cease and he brings his people into the fullness of his promises. And he did just that. Every last person crossed the Jordan. And when they had crossed, you'll see in chapter 4, the Lord commanded Joshua to get 12 men one from each tribe of Israel. And they were to take up 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, from the middle of the Jordan River. And they were to carry those stones out of the river. And later that night, when they set up their camp, they were to build an altar of remembrance to the Lord God for what they had done. The people obeyed Joshua. They went and got those big stones. And after they were done, Joshua, moved by the Spirit of God, went into the middle of the river, right where the priests were standing, and he took another 12 stones and and piled up another altar of remembrance to the Lord their God. So there are two altars we're talking about here. One was built right in the middle of the Jordan so that for years and years and years and years and years, the people could look in the midst of it and say, remember what God has done. And then there was another altar that would be built later that night when the people camped. When the riverbed monument was completed, Joshua commanded the priest to come up out of the Jordan and according to the word of the Lord, as soon as their feet touched the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan came back a-flowing and they flowed at flood stage and overflowed the banks just as they had before. And I can only imagine that as the people finally cross and they see the priests come out, and the moment the priests come out, the waters return, they look back at the river and they just can't even believe what they just saw. They can't even relate to the fact that what happened was just real. It's like, how are we ever going to tell anybody about this? How will we ever explain this? How will anybody ever believe that this has happened? God Almighty is in our midst and he has done amazing things today. And I'm sure they were tempted to stay by the banks of the river and worship God for a long time, but there was no time to waste. And so the people moved up a few miles to a place called Gilgal and they camped there for a few days. And when they reached that place, Joshua built the second altar of stones and he said these words to the people, chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. 
so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, beloved, imagine standing at the banks of the Mississippi and seeing a, a, a memorial jutting up out of it and telling your children that in generations past, God dried up the river, not because the river wasn't there or because of some whatever, but because God, by the power of his hand and the certainty of his promises, made a way for his people to actually walk across the Mississippi River on dry ground. Imagine that. These stones stood as reminders to the people of the faithfulness of God and to the fact that when he's ready, he will work his wonders among his people on the basis of his promises for the glory of his name. The season of suddenly will come and God will act for his name. We see in chapter 5 verse 1 that God's plan to exalt his name among the nations worked. Because all the peoples in that area, east and west, heard about what happened. And the Bible says that their hearts melted with fear. They lost all courage. They lost all strength. They lost their vision. They lost all all sense that they might win this victory against Israel because they knew that just as God had stopped up the waters of the Jordan, he would stop up their armies too if they came and opposed what he did. No matter how hard they tried... They would not be able to succeed against a God who could stop up a river with nothing more than the word of his mouth. The season of suddenly had come, beloved, and God was on the move, and he was making the peoples tremble. God was doing this, not Israel. Before Israel could come into the fullness of what God had for them, they had to submit to what he had commanded them. So I want to remind you again, God told Joshua... Joshua, read my law day and night and obey it. Saturate your mind in my word, and as you get insight about my word, do it. Apply the things that I have told you to do. Joshua, listen to God, beloved. Please see this in the story. In some way, the book of Joshua is about a man who obeyed the word of God and entered into the success of God. And so he read the book and he knew, "Uh uh-oh, the males in Israel are supposed to be circumcised and none of this generation are circumcised. We must come into obedience to the Lord. And so that day they stopped everything and they circumcised every male in Israel in order to be in obedience and conformity with the will of God among them. Now, this was such a great undertaking that they named that place, if I can find it here in my notes, Gibeoth Ha'araloth. Please look at your Bibles. Tell me if you have a footnote about what that word means, what that name means. It's an interesting name. (laughs) Gibeoth Ha'araloth means the hill of foreskins. And all the men said, ouch! This is kind of a grotesque image. It shows you how, how vast this project was and how long it would have taken. But I want to tell you something. That hill of foreskins, as gross as it might seem to us, is actually a testament to the obedience and submission of a people who said, God, we will do as you have commanded. And you have commanded that we take the sign of the covenant on our physical bodies. And no matter what the pain to us no matter the fact that it pauses this movement into the promised land, we will obey you. We will submit to you. We will do as you have commanded. And so they did that. 
And once they had done that, they celebrated the first Passover inside the promised land. And the Bible says that according to the word of the Lord, they actually ate of the fruit of the land. And the moment that the fruit touched the lips of the people, guess what happened? The manna stopped falling down from heaven. Now that's a miracle, beloved. You've got to see this as much of a miracle as the stopping up of the Jordan. You remember for 40 years, 40 years, every morning the people go out of their tents and everywhere they looked there was this bread stuff. This stuff that we have no idea what it was. But they probably said morning by morning, oh man, it's manna. I got to eat that stuff again and again and again. 40 years, every day, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. They enter into the promised land. The fruit of the land touches their lips. Boom, it's not there. God was in control. God was fulfilling his promises. The sign of the manna had given way to the fulfillment of the fruit. And so there was no longer need for the manna. It's just like the signs of the laws of God and all of the prophecies that pointed toward Jesus. They fade away when Jesus comes because he is the object of it all. And in the same way, the fruit came and the manna stopped. Now, while they were encamped in that place, God did one more thing that was miraculous at the end of chapter 5. And I really do find this very striking. Joshua one day was walking down by the banks of the Jordan River. And I, as I meditated on this this week, I just imagined that he was down there just looking at the river, trying to take in what happened. You know, even though he was the guy that God had revealed these things to, you know, he was the guy that God said, Joshua, I'm going to do this, so go tell the people what I'm going to do. It, it was shocking for Joshua. You know, it's one thing to hear, like, for, like in our case, we've heard all of our lives, many of us, that Jesus Christ someday will return and every eye will see him. But believe me, when he hits the sky and like a nuclear bomb lights up the whole horizon and every eye sees him, we will be in awe. We won't be able to understand. It's like, wow, that's what he meant. And so I think when Joshua witnessed the stopping up of the waters and the return of the waters, he was stunned. And I imagine him walking down by the banks just trying to take it all in and just being with the Lord. And then he, he looks up and he sees a man there. And the man is a warrior and the man has his sword drawn and he's ready for battle. So this isn't a guy taking a casual walk. This is not a guy that's just spending time down by the river. This is a serious man and he's got his sword drawn and he's ready for battle. And so Joshua's concerned and he takes note and he says, are you for Israel or are you for our adversaries? And very interestingly, the man answers, no. Are you this or are you that? No. He tells Joshua, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now that was something to say. He was looking at Joshua, who by the flesh was the commander of the army of the Lord. Joshua was the man charged by God to lead the people of Israel into his promises. And now this other man was standing, looking him in the eyes and saying, I am the commander of the armies of God. And no, I'm on nobody's side but the Lord's. Like Jesus Christ, his kingdom was not of this, this world. And so he did not make much of the things of this world. He simply said, I am on the side of the Lord. And Joshua must have understood the depth of what he meant because he didn't ask another question. He fell straight to his face and began to worship. And he said, oh my Lord, what have you come to tell me to do? What instructions have you brought to me? 
And this man, rather than giving Joshua tactical advice for how to take the land, simply said to him, Joshua, you need to take your shoes off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Exodus chapter 3, Moses looked up and saw a bush that was burning, all filled with flames but not being consumed. And so he goes near the bush and God actually speaks to him audibly out of the bush and says, don't come near to this place but take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And beloved, that moment marked the whole entire life and ministry of Moses. That was a moment when God said to Moses, I am with you. And you will do powerful things because I am with you. I am the great I am. I am the God who burns the bush and yet does not consume it. I am the God who fills you with my spirit and uses you for my purposes and for my glory. And I am with you. And now Moses has died and Joshua is by the banks of the river and God essentially repeats the same lesson to him. He says, Joshua, I am with you. My name is Yahweh, which means I am. And I am everything for you. I am your power. I am your strength. I am your strategy. I am your organizational abilities. I am your resources. I am the fear that will strike into the hearts of your enemies. I am your satisfaction. I am your desire. I am everything to you. And Joshua, I am with you. That's how I read this story. God is confirming his presence among his people. Seven centuries before this happened. Oh Lord, let that sink into our minds. Seven centuries before this happened, God made a promise to a man, and he confirmed that promise over and over again. And when the time was right, God began to fulfill his promises. The season of waiting had now given birth to the season of suddenly, and God wanted his people and his commander to know that he was with them. Joshua 3-5, through beloved, is not just the story of a God who used to do great things, in miraculous ways. Joshua 3 through 5 is the story of a living God who still works wonders in the midst of his people on the basis of his promises for the glory of his name. It's a story of a God who lives and works and acts and breathes and promises and fulfills and displays his name among all the nations. Paul said that all of these stories in the Old Testament are written for our benefit. So believe me, God means to speak a living word into our church today and into our lives today. He is the living God who was with Moses, who was with Joshua, who was with Israel, who was with David, who was with Jesus, who was with the apostles, and who is with us right now. In this room right now is the living God. As people's As people, as families, as a church, we've all had to enter into the pain of the season of waiting at one time or another, and perhaps some of you are there right now. Perhaps our church is in a place like that right now. But I want you to rest assured that God is faithful, and He is in control, and He is wise, and He knows what He's doing, and He knows timing like nobody else knows timing. 
And when the time is right, the God of the universe will stand up and suddenly act for the glory of His name on the basis of His promises. And beloved, we will stand in awe of Him. I'm telling you in Christ, beloved, that I'm speaking the Word of God to you today. I've spent a lot of time with the Lord this week, meditating on this story, asking Him, Father, how does this speak into the life of Your people and into the life of this church? And I feel confident that God is saying to us, rest assured. Like, be calm. Be collected. Be at peace. Be patient. I am with You. And when I'm ready... I am going to act in great power for the glory of my name, and you, along with the nations, will give me glory for it. Rest in the Lord, beloved. While we're waiting on him, I think we need to do what God commanded Joshua to do because this was a way of life, so I'll close with this. The Lord told him, and he tells us, live your life like this. Fix your eyes on me by saturating your mind with my word. Think about it day and night. Let it be your meditation day and night. Let it be your food and drink. Let it be your delights. Don't do it because the pastor says you're supposed to. Do it because you want to do it. Saturate your life with my word. Water the garden of your life with my word. Second, as I give you understanding, by the power of my Holy Spirit, just do what I ask you to do. It's so simple. You read it. I give you understanding. I give you power. Do what I ask you to do. As you do that, number three, enter into my promises. So the word for us, fix your eyes on the Lord, submit your life to the Lord, and enter into the promises of the Lord as he makes a way. He will do it, beloved. He will do it. Let's pray for that now. Father, I thank you for the season of waiting because I can't tell you how often in that season you have taught me to love you more than your promises, to love you more than the things that I have been waiting for. And I thank you, Father, that in those seasons you have taught me that when you are my only treasure, you will eventually lead me into your pleasures. And I pray that you would teach all of us that now. Lord, give us the peace of the Holy Spirit, the patience of the Holy Spirit, the willingness to look to our Father and wait on our Father and believe when we cannot see with our eyes and there seems to be no way that God will make a way and believe that someday God will rise up and stop the rivers of the waters that are gushing through our lives so that we can come into the promises of God. Oh Father, by your Holy Spirit I pray today make your word live in the lives of your people and do your mighty work for the glory of your name. I pray this and I trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.